Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of the Tennis and Bagels podcast. I'm your host, Andre, and I am here with uh, the other host, oh, uh, Owen. Wow, well, for whatever reason, I almost forgot your name. <laughs> like, Owen Lewis is here, even though your name is like literally right in front of me. Yeah, uh, and we've only known each other for like three years now. Just three years, just about three years. <laughs> um, yeah, but the funny, f- fun thing about Owen, uh, you might have noticed as well by the title of the this podcast episode, is that He's here also as a guest today because uh, it's a throwback, huge throwback to uh, when we first started um, recording together. And uh, Owen is now, uh, well, first of all, how are you doing, man? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, yeah, how about you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Yeah, just a little yeah. tired, but it's okay. <laughs> I'm just been sleeping badly because I go to bed at like at 2 a.m. playing games, but yeah. Uh, you and me both. Um, yeah. that, have you told the listeners about the recent uh, change in your professional life? Uh, not really, but I guess I am not working at Tennis Canada anymore. I did say that on uh, Twitter, which I'm assuming that's mostly where the people come from, but I guess uh, I should also be saying this here. So yeah, if you if you hear me talking a lot more badly about Canadians or just being a little bit more overcritical of uh, of them, it's that's why. Uh, it doesn't mean that I don't love them. I still love them all. I got to meet a fair share of them, in fact. Uh, so uh yeah so but now i'm free to to say that felix is back and needs work but yeah that's that's essentially what this is um but yeah less less about me and more about you because owen as i was setting as i said it's uh it's basically playing a guest here today um he is he has wrote basically a full book um about sixty thousand words if i'm not if i remember it correctly uh yeah i, I can probably check the word count right now actually um let me see. Uh, yeah, sixty-three thousand. Let's see. That's insane. Like I remember just like trying to write. I'm like, oh my gosh, like I have to do six thousand words. How am I gonna pull this off? But anyhow, <laughs> yeah. But this is a, this is a bit of a like a like a passion project for you. Uh, it's called the Golden Rivalry about the rivalry of Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal, um, which I know for a fact is your favorite. So. Yeah, yeah. How, how did uh, how did you get the motivation uh, to do this? Like, what pushed you into like writing this this one? That's a good question. I think I I don't know if this is necessarily a good thing, but I think like most of my big writing projects are motivated by like difficulty in my personal life. So, um, it was uh, last summer, and I just um I just wasn't doing very well. Um, I kind of had some things going on that were like stressing me out. I was on a trip that was pretty stressful um but i did have a lot of free time and so i was thinking like you know what djokovic and nadal are probably retiring soon djokovic maybe not because he's a cyborg but um like and uh, i figured that it was maybe a topic that people weren't going to cover that much because federer and nadal like all the narratives about that rivalry have been written to death uh federer djokovic is kind of more more on the outside, but Djokovic at all in particular, I thought like people appreciate it, but I don't know if people would necessarily write books about it. So I was thinking like, you know what, let's let's write a book and it will probably gas out in the middle, but let's take it as far as we can. And um I don't I don't think the initial product was very good, but um and what you read now you can judge for yourself, but I somehow got through it by the end of the summer. Um yeah, like in terms of like the the, the rivalry, um, um, I also know for a fact that you also think that this is the best rivalry in men's tennis ever. Um, but um, I think the differences between um, Djokovic, Federer, and Federer and Nadal is that like number one, it's it's a lot closer than those two rivalries were. Um, and as a matter of fact, I think that there's just one win 
separating the two of them. Like Djokovic is at 30 and Nadal's at 29, mm-hmm. uh, which is insane. And Federer and Nadal is just different in terms of like narrative. Like tennis-wise, yeah, it was it was great at times, but um, I think mostly it was just like the 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 mythology behind it that made it like special in that regard. Whereas like Djokovic and Nadal is, it became its own mythology after after 60 matches essentially like they haven't played a 60 yet but i guess it's because it's just such a long rivalry and so many grueling matches like it at some point people are bound to pay attention and just kind of start looking yeah. forward to those um but um in, in terms of that since i'm actually like talking about like why why did you pick this rivalry in particular i want to hear from your from your mouth because i i said that you prefer this match over any uh this matchup and you also think it's the best rivalry but what do you think yeah so you hit on a lot of it right there it's it's the most prolific of the big three rivalries and it's the closest um i mean 59 matches is nuts and they and early on, especially, it, it was pretty crazy um, how often they were playing. I think six times in 2011 and another six in 2013. But by the end of 2013, I think they'd played 38 times already. And that was 10 years ago. So it's kind of um, it's tailed off a little bit in the last um, in the last few years. But they still had some great matches. Um, but I think what sticks out to me the most is just just this year it really is like unstoppable force meeting immovable objects because neither of them have a major weakness, right? Like when Federer is involved, you know that whoever he's playing is going to aim at the backhand and Nadal and Djokovic have worked out how to, you know, unravel that shot pretty well. But with Djokovic and Nadal, um, that's not part of the equation. So they kind of just have to like go at each other until one of them breaks. Um, And that results in these wild rallies, these long marathon matches, um, really, really like subtle and specific tactical adjustments because neither of them has a has a major weakness. Um, they're both they both have all time great defense, all time great endurance, um, and so just as an athletic competition, I don't think there's anything that matches up. Mm. Yeah, and in terms of like, is this you saying that because that's you? that's the reason why you think that's the best rivalry of all time or that's the best rivalry between the big three in general yeah i I think in terms of best rivalry of all time i think you have to give that to um everett and nervatilova because they played eight times like that that will never be equal so statistically that one i think is never going to be touched but i think from an athletic standpoint i think Djokovic nadal is going to be really really hard to beat like i I think like we're actually seeing something sort of similar with Djokovic and Alcaraz now. When mm-hmm. um, like I, I think some of their matches have that feeling to it. Um, like their their Cincinnati final, especially the last few games of that, had that feeling of like just these two people pushing each other who were already like the best, but pushing each other to even greater heights. But I think Djokovic and Nadal like doing that over such a long period as you know movement in tennis was improving. Mm-hmm. We've, you know, Djokovic's gymnastic feats are pretty well known, and Nadal is one of the fastest players ever on tour. Um, and I think all of that combines just, I don't know, you watch that and you feel like they could be successful in other sports as well sometimes. Sure. Yeah. And then I guess, uh, it's, why do you think that's your favorite rivalry? Because uh, you hear, I hear a lot of talks about you saying like how this is super athletic, and it sounds very fact, fact based, but, um, there are people who prefer all sorts of rivalries. Still, there are still people who prefer your your worst nightmares in tennis, which is serving volley and one-handed yeah. backhands. Uh, and those are subjective. So, like in 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 regards to that subjectiveness, like what do you think fascinates you the most about the Djokovic Nadal rivalry? And that risk being the exact same answer, but whatever. <laughs> no, I. It's a good question. You were trying to get me to lose like all credibility here because if the people listening know me you'll know that I have like a lot of unpopular opinions and that I <laughs> sort of try to go against the consensus. So yeah, like again, you hit on some of the things I don't like serve and volley. I like long rallies. The, the aesthetics of a one-handed backhand do nothing for me. Um, and, but I think the biggest thing is just that like this rivalry was not as appreciated as the other ones. Um, you know, Federer and Nadal got all the appreciation that it, and it was fantastic. Like from 2005 to 2009, they played so many great matches, like so many. It was amazing. Like 
you know, Rome 2006, uh, Australian Open 2009, Wimbledon 2008 is the biggest one. Amazing. But after 2009, it really tailed off. And for kind of years and years after that, people were still like, oh, Federer Nadal is, you know, like God's gift to uh, to the tennis world. And during that time, there was like a better rivalry going on, which was Djokovic and Nadal. Um, and I think um, also if, if you know me and you're listening, you know that I really, really like uh, Juan Jose Vallejo's tennis writing. And um, a couple of years ago, I found this website that he co-founded called The Changeover. And um on the changeover, he had written all these live blogs of uh, Djokovic at all matches, and he went into like the the tactics in a way that I hadn't seen before. It was much more specific, and um, you know, Federer and Nadal again, it could be great, but most of the time it just came down to like Nadal attacking Federer's backhand, mm-hmm. and you know, Nadal was up twenty three ten at one point, and um, and Djokovic and Nadal, like I said before, was just much more of like a an all court battle, um. And so I think I slowly started to understand that and slowly started to watch more and more of their matches. And as I did, I real I realized that they were sort of I, I thought they were operating on like a higher level. Um and um so I, I think that was kind of how I became entranced by it. Yeah. Um I guess I, I I'm pretty sure you mentioned that, but like how how long did it take you to to finish this? Because I also hear you from you personally that you try to watch as many matches as you could from this rivalry. So as you also mentioned, these are not short matches. These are normally very, very long ones. So um, how long did it take you like maybe to the process of like saying, I have a finished product, even though the parts were not finally like edited at that point? Yeah. So it took me about a summer, like I would say about three months. And um, I, I don't really think it was weird. By the time I got to the end, I, I did get to the end, but the feeling was more like, oh my God, I'm so burned out. I never want to look at this again, which is why I'm putting it out now instead of, you know, a year and a half ago. Then like, wow, I finished it. Um, But yeah, it was um th- three months, which seems short as I'm saying it, but I, I worked on it pretty much every day, sometimes for a couple hours at a time. Um, And yeah, I, I did rewatch every, like, m- maybe not quite every match. Like, some of their more inconsequential ones, I might have just watched extended highlights. But I, I went through and I watched, like, so many full replays on tennis TV. And um, that that was actually challenging at times because some of the matches are not as good as the highlights would suggest. Like, um, w- one that people really like to um, say is one of their best is uh, the Montreal one in 2013, um, which went to a final set tiebreak. It, and it is pretty good, but... What people don't mention is that the first set and a half kind of sucked. Like, um, Nadal comes out hot, but Djokovic is, like, all over the place. He's, like, double faulting five times in the first set. And um, in the second set, like, it finally gets going when they play this epic point in the middle of the second set. Like, Nadal hits his on-the-run forehands down the line, and Djokovic wins the point with, like, a forehand slice winner kind of on the run. Um, And after that, it gets good. But that was only after, like an hour plus you know so there were a few matches like that where i was like yeah like this one this one is good but it's maybe not as good as i thought it was you know um so that that can get a little draining but i i did enjoy going back and um i I caught a lot of moments that um that i wouldn't have caught from highlights so i'm glad i did all yeah it's like i feel like it even though it didn't rise to the level of federer and nadal like in terms of like the their um their the fantastic aspect of their names and as I said like the mythology behind it but I think because of the names of Djokovic Nadal they're still so big that you mm-hmm. tend to remember their matches a little bit more flowery than they were actually in the, in the, in a way it's like there are many matches that are great and obviously uh, we watch so many highlights and then we remember so many like great points that like it's, we just tend to like project this to the entire match but i guess you having watched whatever that would be like 60 plus hours of tennis like watching all of this uh <laughs> yeah I, I see yeah probably more than that actually maybe it's um but it's such a great point you make like um and uh, I, m- I mean another one is like the, the 2012 australian open final um i see a lot of comments that are like this is like one of the best quality matches of all time and maybe if you watch the highlights, you would think that. But I, I've seen the whole match probably four or five times. And it's it's amazing. It's 
maybe the most impressive match I've ever seen from an endurance standpoint or a force of will standpoint. But the quality of the tennis is not very good. Um, the first three sets are pretty forgettable. And the last two are amazing. You know, if you want quality, mm. you should watch the uh, 2018 Wimbledon semi between Djokovic and Nadal because that's five amazing sets. Um, but so, so so it is funny. Like I, sometimes I see these comments and I'm like, but I'm, I'm bad at articulating like uh, arguments like this sometimes. And I it's just like, my God, I wish that like, uh, I wish everyone had seen the full matches. Um, mm. So I'm hoping that's something I'll be able to, to get across but with the book. Like some... Um, like maybe some forgotten moments or some turning points that people um, wouldn't remember or maybe missed entirely from highlights. How many chapters are there again? So there are 33, but that's kind of a flexible number because uh, some chapters are like, um, like if you've read my articles before, um, some of them can get pretty long, like, you know, 3,000, 4,000 words. Some chapters are like that. Um, Others are closer to 1000 um so if i have a really long one i might break that into two or if there's a really short one i might beef that up um i might even add uh new chapters entirely along the way Mm -hmm. like um i haven't done this yet but i think it might be fun to do some like top 10 lists like top 10 best matches uh top 10 best points even Mm -hmm. and then i'd sort of write my rationale underneath um so i feel like that could be a fun bonus feature yeah and uh I guess uh, because you were, you were mentioning it, it kind of just like two uh, questions kind of popped up in my head. Uh, first of all, like, what do you think it's your favorite match? The first one uh, between between the two of them. I think it's the, the 2018 World Bowl semifinal because, you know, as much as I love the rivalry and as much as um, I try to talk it up, like, I think that was really their first, like, all-time great match. Uh, like particularly like in best of five um up until that point they had kind of they'd played so many amazing sets you know like hour and 20 minute like best set you've ever seen type sets like um you know the um the 2021 roland garros semi the third set of that people um people freaked out about that set because it was amazing and before that it was the 2011 u.s open final the third set about that of that i think it was a similar reaction because that set was just like from from the word go it was incredibly intense great quality insanely close three or four points that were just insane but um you know they couldn't really sustain it beyond a set or two because like no one could the intensity is just way too high you have to have a drop off after that um and i think that 2018 wimbledon semifinal they finally like sustained it over a full match i think it being two separate days helped um because you had that curfew in the middle um but yeah something about that match from the very beginning they were both on um it had momentum swings it had incredible winners to errors ratio they both hit 73 winners and 42 on force errors which is an amazing stat um i think going into the last game they had won the same number of points and then Djokovic broke it love to win the match. So he ended up uh, winning four more points. Um, again, there are a few rallies in that one that you can, I think you can put up against pretty much any. Um, yeah, I, I think it has everything. And it's a shame that it kind of went under the radar because it was a semifinal. Um, it was broken up into two days, but I, I think that's by far their best. Yeah, there's definitely one of the matches that I hear the least about. Like, I feel like in terms of semifinals, even the Madrid 2009 was far more talked about than 2018 yeah. Wimbledon. Yeah, it, it really was. And it's interesting because I think that 2018 Wimbledon match, like, that might go down as, like, the turning point in the GOAT debate for um, for people who watched it. You know, if so at that point, I think Nadal had 18 majors. And Djokovic had 12, and he had been two years without a major, right? So, like, this is his comeback, because he goes on to win Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. And then he wins, basically doubles his major count over the course of the next five and a half years. If he if he loses that to Nadal, Nadal probably crushes Kevin Anderson in the final. He's got 19 majors, Djokovic has 12 still. But beyond that, Nadal gets a huge win against Djokovic on a surface that is not favorable to him. Um and Djokovic has the realization that, oh, I played so well and I didn't win. Um, and then maybe that has a carryover effect later in the rivalry. Like the next time they play, 
Nadal is going to have that edge in the big moments um, because he pulled out like this incredibly tight five setter. But um, but no, Djokovic wins it, and he and like even though he was still like five majors back from Nadal and seven from Federer after he won that tournament, that that started something for him because he wins the next two majors after that. He wins three of them in 2021 wins three more this year um and it, it really all started with that match because the two years before that he they were two of the worst years in his career didn't Djokovic say something along the exact same lines of what you said like I played my best tennis but still didn't win wasn't it like 2008-2009 semi-final I think you wrote yeah. that like in your, one of your recent ones didn't you yeah. yeah thanks for catching that I um yeah he he did say that he said I'm trying to remember the exact quote I think he said yeah, like I, I played my best and I like I think the quote that sticks with me is like I even played a few points above my limits and I yeah. still mm-hmm. um and if you contrast that with what he said after the first time they played, um, which was at the French Open in two thousand and six. So for those who haven't seen it, Nadal goes up six four, six four, and then Djokovic retires, I think, with a back injury. Um, but in the press conference, Djokovic is talking about how he Nadal is beatable and Djokovic thinks that most of the points depended on him. And he, um, it's, and it sounded almost delusional to the people at the time. Like Brad Gilbert is like making fun of him on ESPN because like that was the natural thing to do. But, you know, clearly Djokovic saw something and I think history has like borne that out that he was right. Um, but yeah, but then that Madrid match is interesting to me because it's the complete opposite, right? Like instead of saying, I think I could have won, he's saying like, I played above my best and I still lost. So the fact that he, had the mental fortitude to come back from that. And also the fact that, you know, 2009 Djokovic is not prime Djokovic, but the fact that anyone can get him to say that, it seems insane given what he's gone on to achieve, right? But yeah, that that was that was who Nadal on clay was. Like, um, you would play your best and he would still beat you. And it broke a lot of players, but uh, but not Djokovic. Yeah. About that, like that quote from 2006, I think this is like a bunch of uh, things because I believe he was 19 years old at that at that time. Yeah, he's a child, and then, yeah, it's it's funny to think. I mean, obviously he's like on legal age, he's an adult, but still, like 19 years of it is like such a young age. Um, but it, it kind of strikes me as like two things, and obviously, like with in hindsight, but like I feel like it's um a mixture of belief, um extrapolated belief uh, in his own talent and obviously like the fact that he, he does know it he is extremely talented but also maybe the fact that maybe Nadal's game just kind of gives a little bit of that impression in, in some ways just because you're on the attack and Nadal's on the defense doesn't mean they're in control <laughs> which is like yeah. basically exactly what he ended up finding out um, over his next few matches on the clay against Nadal and I think that probably switched up a little bit of his belief but he still believes he can beat Nadal. Like he's he's done it, so it's not impossible. It's just really hard, and even Djokovic struggled massively with it. I think he he has like a what like a one third of success rate uh, against Nadal and Clay, maybe less, like seven out of yeah, little less than that. I think. Yeah. I think. Yeah, I think he's eight and twenty. So yeah, um, something like that. Yeah, but yeah, again. it's it's pretty it's pretty insane. Like I mean, you, you can. <laughs> The comments are funny. Maybe that was a little bit of a, that's my, my feeling. That's maybe something that he didn't really, really notice. Maybe he noticed that he is good enough to like be on the attack. He didn't, mm-hmm. didn't notice that Nadal was good enough to stay on the defense for a very long time. So, um, which yeah. he ended up finding out later. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's an interesting point. And I mean, yeah, I think something that goes a little forgotten is that, especially since Djokovic has dominated Nadal on hard courts for the past 10 years, um, Early on on clay, it was similar. Djokovic didn't beat him on clay until 2011. So even though he ended up being right about those quotes, it took him five years. Yeah. It took him another four years after that to beat him at the French Open, and that was a diminished version of Nadal. Six years after that to beat a, a better version of Nadal, right? So he, he lost the first nine nine matches against Nadal on clay. So it, it took a lot of time. And I think, um, yeah, so w- when he said, like, he is beatable, like, he was right, but yeah, I think I I don't know if he thought it would take as long as it did yeah. because the ball made it very very difficult for him. Yeah. The second question that I wanted to ask you is that uh, because you mentioned to 2013 Montreal, um, what do you think is the worst match that you've seen between Nadal and Djokovic? 
And like, let's let's discount the ones that one or the other was clearly injured because that's boring. Right. That's a great question. Um, I think I know the answer to that one, but I'll let you think of it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts because I have no idea. I think it's hard because a lot of their matches are great, and I think the, the ones where it's a demolition because that happened a lot too, you know. Um, and that's why. Like, I don't count it against the rivalry that there have been a lot of one-sided matches because that's just what happens. When two players are on that high a level, if you're off that little bit, you get steamrolls. And um, they were so good at peaking for the matchups that, you know, one does it and the other one does not peak, then you get like a 6-2, 6-2 or something like that. So those matches are spellbinding in their own way because, you know, peak Djokovic on hardcore, it's like video game tennis. Peak Nadal on clay, it's like, probably the hardest player to beat in tennis history so a, a demolition like the the 2016 doha final Djokovic beats nadal 6-1-6-2 nadal doesn't really do much wrong i i don't consider that a bad match necessarily but that quality um hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So even though this is kind of similar to the Doha match, I was so personally disappointed by the 2019 Australian Open final. Um, I mean, because that, say that. Because that was so hyped. And that was, that was only their second match at the Australian Open and their last one. And the first one was that, that six-hour marathon. So you're seeing highlights of that like all through the lead-up. Nadal looked great in his first six matches. Um, they had just come off that amazing match at Wimbledon. So you had a reason to think it would be close. Um, I was hanging out with friends the night before and they were like, do you want to sleep over? And I was like, no way. I have to watch this match. Um, so I go home and I watch it. And it, um, and you know, it's one of Djokovic's best all-time performances. So again, it's, it's spellbinding for that. But I think the headspace I was in at the time, I was convinced it was going to be a great match. Um, at the time, I... Um, I was kind of yet to fully come around on Djokovic, so I was like totally rooting for Nadal as well. Um, and uh, you know, he never breaks serve; he doesn't have a break point until the the third set. He only the stat I think is the craziest about that match is I'm pretty sure he only hits two winners on Djokovic's serve the entire match. So like all points played on Djokovic's serve in that match, Nadal gets two winners in three sets. Like that's that's insane. Um, the next time they played on hardcore, um, Nadal gets two winners in Djokovic's first service game. Um, so, like that tells you how how much trouble Nadal was having. Um, and um, yeah, I, I was just shocked. But um, what wh- what do you think? I don't know. I, I was ex- I was thinking exactly that same match, which is because like it's a it, it's a match that Nadal just was so diminished, like in in terms of like his his play ability, just because Djokovic was so good. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know. I think it's a it's always like a little boring, like I said, particularly for me, like I don't, I just don't really have, and that comes like the subjective su- subjectivity thing again. But I just don't really see it, like when the player is like really good beating out another player, like just so dominantly. Um, it's just kind of like I, if I want to watch a super high quality match, I'd rather have them both be be playing really well. Yeah, um, so so yeah, like I mean, yeah, sure, like Djokovic played like an re- incredible match and. I also don't discount it against rivalry is like part of the history of the day to have and yeah part of the beauty of tennis that we have different surfaces in which Nadal is able to come back the next year and completely destroy Djokovic in the final of Roland Garros 
Um, right. So yeah, I think that those are the matches that are like the the ones that I would count like for me is like the least the least memorable like in that sense just because it's like yeah they kind of just did what they do best and it just ended up being like a routine in in that regard like I mean they they were worth uh, titles that count towards their tally of like goatness in terms of like okay. just their major but match itself probably would be like yeah I guess I guess losing player and fans probably would have liked to forget this match yeah and, and i'm glad you brought up that 2020 roland garros final because that's the inverse and you can say the exact same things about that match like which it's one of nadal's best performances but it's also like djokovic was bad you know um djokovic was favored to win that match um which is insane in retrospect given how it unfolded but but yeah that one it, it was supposed to be a, a war a marathon it was supposed to be like a great great match and um Djokovic just never really showed up. He um he he did break serve once in the third set, but it yeah he he got blown out even worse in the first two sets. And um yeah. he, and like I don't know after about a set, like yeah you are marveling at the player who's in the lead, but you're also like come on like where's the you're waiting for the response and yeah. in those two matches it just never came. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, to your point, I would say like probably the 2019 final was worse. Like in that regard, just because like I feel like Djokovic kind of pull out pull out like some resistance and in third set, but uh, I think it was obviously too little, too late. Like in the in that point, Nadal was already like way too high on his own adrenaline and his own like knowledge that like there's no way he's losing that match, uh, even or even that set. So like brave enough from Djokovic to pull any resistance, but like Nadal just never really had a chance. Um, but I think that I, I think I think I said like when um, I think we recorded an episode right after that match as well, uh, with, yeah. in which I think I said like I feel like, and that's probably maybe a parallel that Djokovic maybe thought as well. Just like they were so ready to come out like against a player that will never give up. They're just like I'm just gonna play six hours. I better like start like right off the gate like as best as I possibly can, and then they just kind of like just started running like so fast and when they look in the rear mirrors like where's the other guys it's like yeah it's like they barely left like the um the starting line it's like oh okay i guess <laughs> it's gonna yeah. keep rolling then like whatever <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Like that, that's kind of like the feel i get from from those performances that are so magnificent and the, the other guys just like nowhere to be found pretty much uh, absolutely and and you see that pretty frequently like we see it pretty much every time they play on hard courts now we see it um Basically, every time they've played at the French Open recently, like um, even the one Nadal lost in 2021, he wins the first five games of that match, and he's he's like taking Djokovic to school, which is usually unthinkable. And um, you know, their one last year too, which I was lucky enough to be at. Everyone's like, you know, it's a coin flip. Djokovic was favored in that one too, but you you think it's going to be like this titanic struggle, and then Nadal comes out and wins the first at six two and looks like the the greatest player alive, you know, um. And um, it, yeah, so like they, they both know on a very, very like deep level that if they don't do that, then like at best they're going to have to play one of those like four or five, six hour matches. So I think that's why they start so hot is like there's just no room to ease into the match. Um, and I think that's another thing that makes the rivalry unique, you know, like um. I, I think like when Federer is involved, you know that he's going to cruise on serve a lot, and uh, there are going to be times when like he hits four backhand returns into the net. So you're going to have that easy service game, and um, you know Nadal and Djokovic have improved their serves, so they're not immune to that, I guess. But um, with them, it's much more like you play a bad service game, you're going to get broken, um, and um, it, you know that other player misses first serves, and they're immediately they smell blood. Um, so I think that's why they've started like so so hot out of the gates in a lot of their recent matches because they understand um there's just no space to like mess yeah. around and um what do you think was um you already said like you jumped you skipped a few of like bundle of a, a few of those into the same chapter just because they were like less consequential but then on the on the odds uh, on the other side of the spectrum what do you think is the most significant match they've ever played and i think you already answered the question but like you can you can say it again if you want to yeah um so i i do think it's the wimbledon one but i i I think another good good one is that 2012 australian open final because i think that came at a really important part of Djokovic's development he's just come off this amazing 2011 season he's number one in the world by a landslide 
And in this match, and and I should say the 2011 U.S. Open, he's kind of just proved that he can do anything mentally because he's down two match points against Roger Federer against serve, and he wins. Um, but then you go into this 2012 Australian Open, and something's up with his endurance. Like even before the final, he's he's gassed against um, Leighton Hewitt in the fourth round, and then he's gassed against David Ferrer in the quarterfinal, and that was a straight set match. And then in the and he lost a set to Hewitt, right? I think it was he a, did, six, yeah. a six four set to Hewitt, which yeah. is like whoa, that is right so unthinkable. Like, at that point. like a, a a grandpa Hewitt, who basically like no, no disrespect, he was a great player, but I don't think there's one thing he does better than Djokovic, right? So that was weird. And then the semi against Murray, which goes four hours and fifty minutes. I mean, there are times in that match where it looks like Djokovic might not be able to finish. He's in the in the second set, he's like gassed and, and we see that much more frequently now where he's like falling over after rallies but we have to remember this is him at his physical prime he was either 24 or 25 at this point um so you're seeing that and it really looks like Murray was going to beat him but Djokovic survives that match um and then the final is even more exhausting um and Nadal takes his best punch and survives a fourth set that he should have lost and they're in the fifth and Nadal is so much fresher and he goes up a break and then Djokovic somehow comes back to win. And I think, and that showed that he could do anything physically. And so I think that combined with the the mental confidence from the 2011 US Open, that just sort of, I don't know. I think that established him as like the Superman of tennis. I think someone someone wrote that line after the match. Um, and even though he like didn't win another major for another year after that like he he didn't do that well in 2012 by his standards um but i think that match was so important because if he had lost it i don't think he would have quite the same aura and reputation that he has now um and, and then of course you have the numbers and it all gets another australian open um like djokovic maybe that place doesn't become djokovic's um like home base anymore because he had only won two australian opens at that point 2012 was his third so Nadal wins that match. He and Djokovic are tied in Australian Open titles. Um, and, you know, I think Djokovic still goes on to win more. But I think, you know, that that could have potentially shifted the whole landscape. So I, I think that's a good submission for their most pivotal one. Yeah. I think conversely, if you take, if you're talking like obviously rivalry-wise, uh, yeah, I, would, I would tend to agree um, with you. But player-wise, I think, I think maybe 2010 uh, U.S. Open and 2020 uh, Roland Garros were probably very important wins to Nadal in particular because 2010 is like completes the career Grand Slam, um, beats Djokovic, um, probably posts like the best season of his career or second best season of his career, and and yeah, I think maybe that goes on to give him some belief that he can still win at the U.S. Open as well, which was basically at the time uh, Grand Slam that people were always saying like. Nadal is never going to win the U.S. Open, which yeah. was a real threat. At that time, it was a real thought. Like people, and especially because nobody really believed that Nadal was going to play over up to 37 years of age. So that is a, there's another thing. And I guess like 2020 just kind of on the same vein as well, Nadal. Like, and I'm a lot older now at that point. Also a tying match uh, from t um, the one to tie with 20, 20 Grand Slams apiece with Roger Federer. Yeah. So yeah, and that, that one also kind of goes on to say, oh, Nadal is still able to win, and is still king of clay, as if yeah. there was any doubt, regardless. But anyhow, <laughs> right? I, yeah, those are great ones, and I I would also add the 2013 U.S. Open final mm -hmm. because that, you know, that was similar to the 2010 U.S. Open final. Nadal wins in four sets, but I think the key difference there is that that came after Djokovic had dominated him in 2011, um, and so after that. You're thinking like, and Djokovic beat him in a way where it was like, well, how is Nadal supposed to adjust? Because he's just playing like this cyborg who has no weaknesses, who's defending as well as him, who returns better, serves better, is like doesn't need as much time to load up on the forehand. Like he he was battering Nadal, and so I think, you know, those 2013 matches now where Nadal beats Djokovic on hard court, I think they've sort of become almost like parodied by Djokovic fans because it's like such you know such a great match like the last time Nadal beat Djokovic on a hardcore like uh 10 years ago but but they were really impressive I think 
I think rebounding from six straight losses to someone seven straight um, after the 2012 Australian Open final and then coming back to beat them again on their favorite surface is pretty monumental. Um, and even though Nadal didn't beat Djokovic on hardcore again after that, he did survive another insane losing streak to Djokovic and came back to beat him multiple times on play after that. Um, I think that's really amazing. I think... And I think overall, just beating Djokovic 29 times is insane. I think that's one of Nadal's... That's near the top of Nadal's resume to me. Because Djokovic is, you know, he's the perfect tennis player, like we talk about. And he's a nightmare for Nadal on hard courts. There's a reason that Nadal hasn't even been able to take a set off him in 10 years. Um, and so even though most of those 29 are on clay, the fact that he has beaten Djokovic 29 times... It's it's hard to put into words how impressive that is, I think. Yeah. I think especially, like, if you keep Nadal as in, like, yes, uh, Clay is a sanctuary, but, like, how much better Nadal has to manage to be uh, than Djokovic on Clay uh, as to make the rivalry 20 to 8, as you said. Like, um, and, yeah, Djokovic hasn't been beaten by Nadal on, on hard since 2013. But... A lot of matches were a lot closer than a lot of matches that Nadal beat Djokovic in uh, on clay. Um, and yes, they pull each other like very, uh, very. They push each other very far. But specifically, Errol and Garros. I, it's okay. it's hard to imagine that it's it's the one thing that I find that Djokovic is probably never going to uh, be able to achieve in his career. Which is like it's just fine. Like I mean, they don't have to be. Um, the absolute perfection of a player that's going to dominate every single surface like fully but the level of dominance that Nadal ever had on clay is something that is is even Djokovic obviously understands that this is this is one of the achievements of the century in any sports like it's 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 not enough I guess like uh, now I would say that to to put him um as a GOAT player not that I want to like really revisit this debate too much but like I would say that like um, just mostly just to say, like, I'm not claiming that Nadal is the best of all time just because he's incredible on clay. But um, it's it's definitely an achievement that, like, even Djokovic would have to, like, look at this and be like, wow, I would I don't think I would ever be able to do that. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I agree. And, yeah, it, it, I mean, you have all the crazy stats, but just in the context of the rivalry, Novak Djokovic, pretty much the undisputed goat of tennis, is 2-8 and eight against Nadal at Roland Garros. Um, he's a 20% win percentage across 10 matches. That that tells you the level that Nadal is operating at at that tournament. Yeah. Um, and I think the fact that Nadal was able to beat him there as recently as last year, um, a lot of people thought Djokovic was going to win that match. Um, he had beaten him the year before, and Nadal beats him in a four-set, four-hour-plus match in which he played better on the big points. Um, and that does not really happen to Djokovic, as we know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Nadal at Roland Garros is just the one puzzle he was not really able to solve. Um, he's he's 3-1 against Federer at Wimbledon. Um, he's, you know, dominated everyone everywhere. But Nadal at Roland Garros just, he could not... He could not really figure that out. Um, that, that win in 2021, I think, was massive, even though... Nadal's foot was kind of um, was a thing in the fourth set and and really slowed him down. The the fact that Djokovic was able to have even that much success there is is pretty outstanding. Yeah, yeah. and honestly, like some of the best matches that they played as well were at Roland Garros. Even though Nadal ended up winning those like 2013 semifinal coming yeah. to mind, but like oh, that's one actually that arguably Djokovic should have won. <laughs> mm-hmm. But at, you know, context of matches and whatnot, again, 13 years ago. But yeah, it was extremely significant as well, I guess. But um, yeah, and I guess like just coming back to uh, the book topic, um, what do you think was uh, your favorite chapter to write of this rivalry? That's a good question. But to revisit, if you will, I I will be honest. A lot of them blurred together because I wrote them so close together, but. I, I think that a couple of them that have gone out already, I really liked. Um, I think so. The very first chapter, um, n- not the introduction, but the uh, the first chapter. Um, I kind of focus on their um their two thousand and eight Hamburg semifinal, which um, 
no one talks about anymore because it's been buried by so many more consequential matches and better matches, but that's one of their best. Um, they're both so young. It's Nadal pretty close to his peak on clay. Um, and they play some points that are are amazing. It's, it's sort of similar to that Wimbledon semifinal and it, it's like unrelenting high quality, which is pretty unusual. Um, and so I, I really enjoyed revisiting that. And then um, one of the most recent chapters, I think either the second or the third one, I focused on that 2009 Madrid semifinal that we've been talking about a lot. Um, that one was really fun to write. That, that's one of their best matches. The end is as good as any stretch of tennis you can find. Um, and so I really enjoyed dissecting that um, and also talking about the mental difficulties for Djokovic of playing above your best level and still losing. Um, I, yeah, I, I think I, I hope that people will enjoy that one. I think there's a lot there. Yeah. Excited. When do you plan on, on finishing, publishing the last one again? I forget. Like, what was your timeline? Um, so they're going out twice a week. It's, um, Wednesdays and Sundays. Um, if that starts to drag, I might start doing like three a week. Um, but I, I figured like the off season would be a good time. And then I think after the Australian Open is kind of a dead zone for a while until the sun, sunshine double. So hopefully in that spot, when people have tennis withdrawals, um, this could be a, a cool thing to look at. But it, it'll be running for a few months at least. Hmm, nice. And um, what was the, your, the most challenging one to write? The most challenging part of this this book to, to put together? Or chapter or just maybe... Maybe 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 let's break this down into two questions. What was the most challenging part about like writing the book entirely, and what was the most difficult chapter to write? Like, just the most difficult section. I think the most difficult section was the 2012 Australian Open final. I I know I'll be revisiting that and making a lot of edits because that one was just challenging because that match is so well known and so much has been written about it that it's hard to come up with a unique spin. Um, mm. so. I, I will be spending a lot of time on that. Um, and then the most challenging part of writing the whole thing was just the workload. Like, it's not it's not that different from writing articles. It's just much bigger volume. And so the hardest thing was just having the the staying power to get to the end of it. I think I think when I listen to authors talk about writing books, like, that's what they say is, like, the hardest part is just finishing. Um, and, and in my experience, it was true. Like, you... There are so many spots along the way where it's like, screw this. I'm tired of looking at this and I'm going insane. Uh, I would like to never look at it again. And that was kind of what I did when I finished it. Um, like I said, it's it's been a while since I got to the end. Um, I'm kind of only putting it out now because I'm like, I mean, first of all, like I, I do think it's a good time to share it with them wrapping up their careers. But it was also like, I just didn't really feel like revisiting it. Like it wasn't in my head at all for a lot of the recent months. Um so yeah, I think I don't think anyone should look to me for writing advice, but um, I, I do think that's the hardest part. Like if you can finish, like then you know you can make it sound better in the edits. Um, it doesn't have to be good. I think getting into the end is the hardest part. Nice. I had another question, Brett, but like you guys, I got too inspired by you you're talking about that um, finishing a book. It's definitely like a challenge. Like you should think about it all the time. Like should I write a book at some point? But yeah, I think especially specifically speaking in in terms of uh, just the the insanity that is just looking at the same product like over and over again. Yeah. Um, I think I used to do a lot of video editing, and it's definitely like it's driving me insane at times because you're just looking at it like screw this, like just it's just going out the way it is right now. But yeah, right, I, yeah, I think it's good that like honestly, like I think it's a great idea uh, at least like for uh, an initial. Um, and an initial publication of a book, I guess, like to really see like chapter by chapter, because then it kind of gives you time to like edit it one at a time and see how it goes and like see how people receive uh, like receive it and whatnot. And it's doing great so far. I've been I've been reading a few. I'm I'm lagging behind a bit, but uh, I was just reading about the 2008 uh, Hamburg fight um, semifinal. Uh, but yeah, it's a it's it's a really good read so far, and it's definitely gonna be enjoyable during the off season. Th thank you. That that means a lot. And um. Yeah, like if it, if you'd like to follow along, that's uh, it's on Substack. the The name is uh, the Golden Rivalry. It's um, it's the, like it's all free. There's no paywall. If you'd like, you can send me money, but there's absolutely zero pressure to do that. And um, yeah, I, I do think like 
um, I, I'm very unattached to the number of people who subscribe. So you you can know I'm being honest when I say this. I I do think the easiest way to follow along is just drop your email in there, and then you you get them in your inbox at the at the schedule times. Um, my hope is that people um, like start to look forward to new chapters and stuff. I'm hoping it sort of gathers steam as it goes along. But um, yeah, e- either way, like um, it's already written, so I don't really have to deal with um deal with like an emotional uh fall off if it if it flops horribly um so yeah yeah i'm excited like maybe like in the next five or ten years like when you're like more like developed in a career or something or just decide to revisit yeah. it and just put it up about publishing like physical copy of it just like re-edited the whole thing i think would be really interesting and they're probably going to redo the entire podcast at that point um but yeah well i guess go ahead say oh sorry yeah i mean that would be amazing i like it's incredibly daunting to me. So like another reason why I'm doing this in the format I am is like, I just don't want to deal with hmm. trying to send to publishers, dealing with rejections, like all of that. So I was like, I'll just put it out myself. And if it like makes money, great. If it doesn't, that's fine. Like hmm. hopefully people like it. Um, but yeah, that, that would be cool to somehow to someday get a, a physical copy. Um, yeah. That'd be cool. yeah. Well, it's like, it's okay to start slow and uh, you, Hey, you wrote a book. How many? I mean, there's a lot of people that can say that, but I can't say that. And there's a lot of people who can also not say that. So there you go. Like, there's a those few things that people can do in 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 a lifetime. Have you planted a tree yet? <laughs> no, I I need to. And uh, if you if you wrote a book, I would read it. Yeah, I'm thinking about like what should I even write about? Like, finding the topic is definitely something. Um, but um, yeah, as a as Owen just said, uh, you can follow along on Substack, thegoldenrivery.substack.com. Um, it's very easy to find, even if you forget, like the link is not any crazy complicated URL that simple. Um, you can also find the links in the description of this episode on Owen's Twitter account, which is at Tennis Nation. Um, we're going to tweet it out uh, as well, like from the Tennis and Bagels podcast, which you can follow at Tennis and Bagels. And um, yeah, you can just. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, thanks so much for reading uh, Owen's book as well. It means a lot to him. Uh, so, yeah, um, we'll see you guys around. Thank you. Yeah, th- thanks so much for uh, well letting me come on as a guest, Andre. And and yeah, I, I should have said this much earlier, but yeah, I I deeply appreciate anyone who che- who takes the time to check this mm-hmm. out. It it does mean a lot. Yeah, as much as I deeply appreciate anybody who has actually take the time to read to listen to this podcast as well. So, yeah, thanks so much everybody for listening, and I'll see you guys next episode. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.